0: People love roadmaps. We love to know what will happen next and how we can best prepare for new seasons of life. We hate the process and we loathe uncertainty. In fact, I laugh out loud when I'm reminded of this old quote, there is nothing certain but the uncertain, which is, I don't know, maybe how my life has worked out, but I don't know. This week on the podcast, we have Liz Vice on the show. And Liz... She gets this truth in a profound way and has learned to soar despite the roadblocks and unforeseen medical problems that would profoundly impact her life. Liz was raised in Portland, Oregon, which is where we first met, and she is a gospel and R&B singer, and she spent time touring and playing venues and festivals around the country with a bunch of names that you have heard of. But it's interesting because her background was never in music or at least it wasn't the plan to go down the path of music after starting off as a child wanting to be an actress and and that not really panning out she turned to the world of filmmaking and ended up doing background casting for commercial and feature films like portlandia green room the a-list and cog And then she ended up getting to work at Wyden & Kennedy, which is one of the top ad agencies in the entire world. They're responsible for Nike's Just Do It and the Old Spice guy, things like that. But it's amazing because despite finding success in these other things, you know, as she continued down her path towards film, it made this strong pivot towards music and her trajectory was never a straight one. But it's beautiful to see the way that she got from point A to point B in incredible ways. Liz lives in New York City now, and we actually recorded this over the internet, but I'm actually recording this intro from Brooklyn, New York. So it's, it's funny to be in the same place, but not at the same place. This is great. Anyway, I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we have hopeful conversations with resilient and creative people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact for the good of humanity. I can't wait for you to be impacted by Liz's story, so let's just jump straight into this conversation. Okay, so you're like one of those Californians (laughs) that like comes up to Portland and we all hate you, but also like you make Portland awesome.
1: I was four years old, so... (laughs) I didn't really have a choice in the matter.
0: Didn't have a choice in the matter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So my nieces and nephews were all born in Portland. Uh, Well, actually one nephew wasn't. But yeah, for the most part, like Portland is in my blood. And now that I live in New York City, this is like my first time, my first big move outside of Portland as a conscious, aware human being.
0: How's that transition been for you?
1: Well, Friday the 13th will be my one-year anniversary.
0: Whoa.
1: And it feels like it's only been a blip. And it's interesting how my upbringing in Portland comes out so clearly at times, especially when drinking coffee or (laughs) people talk about, oh, New York has incredible food. Now, you might get backlash from this, but I have met people from all over the world who say Portland, Oregon is their food Mecca. And I can vouch for that. And you can find incredible food that's healthy for cheap.
0: Totally.
1: So I feel like I don't really eat out as much living in New York city. Um, and the diversity, like growing up in a place where there aren't a lot of Brown people,
0: Portland is so white. It's like
1: it's so, so white. ridiculous. Oh my gosh. I try to soften the blow and say it's very monochromatic. <laughs> um, I had some friends go visit from New York. they are two white dudes. And one of them was like, hey, I just, the one thing I noticed is that all of my friends are white. I'm like, uh, I know that. <laughs> and what's next? Slim Pickens. Actually, I... I mean, I have black friends. I've actually had an array of friends from literally all nations. I guess literally a strong word. <laughs> maybe <it's the laughs> nations. But from like all over the world, um, cultural backgrounds, I've always just been drawn to people outside of my culture and outside of the American culture. I think it's a beautiful
0: thing, so well, when I moved to Portland, that was maybe one of the biggest things I learned in like my first few years in Portland because I grew up in a small, rural, conservative town in Eastern Washington that it's a beautiful, like amazing town and and I love the people there, but you know, I moved to the exact opposite city, like like progressive, urban Portland, Oregon, and I was just so. I was living right downtown and I was just so enamored by the stories I would hear from people and and it was a, a real awakening for me for sure to like just bump into people every day where I'm like I disagree with you or like I've never met someone like you and still liking all these people you know like oh, getting yeah. to know their stories to a point where I'm like oh like I'm different from you and I and I like you and and that was a huge turning point for me in, in Portland and and that's something that has opened up a lot of doors and opened up my mind in a lot of ways. And and so I don't know if it's Portland that does that or just, you know, you and I coming of age in, in that city, but uh, there's something special there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I went to private school for kindergarten until the eighth grade. And yeah, I mean, I feel like I just grew up having teachers that taught me that recycling is important since day one. Like being taught there's a hole in the ozone layer in the first grade. Remember watching news reports on the war in Kuwait in the second grade and watching anti-war videos and putting an egg into a glass of Coca-Cola. This is what Coca-Cola does to your teeth, but you can (laughs) also clean a car battery with that too. I remember burying like aluminum foil or styrofoam and learning that it was evil. I mean, like composting and how they banned plastic bags. That was like such a part of my everyday culture.
0: Totally. yeah. Moving
1: to New York where...
0: It's big piles of garbage just sitting uh, on the street.
1: And how much food (laughs) do you throw away? And I'm Uh. like, that could go into a garden. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so bougie. (laughs) Missing sidewalk grass and... Just the silence, the quiet, um, being able to go. I mean, we live by water, so it's really easy to get to the ocean from where I live, which is awesome. I love living by water so much and just seeing it when you're on the train or crossing a bridge, going to the store. Like, I love it so much. Or standing at the train and looking across and you can see the Statue of Liberty. But yeah, growing up, in Portland, you meet so many different types of people. And yeah, I mean, we don't really need to go into all of this, but I will say that I've met tons of different types of people, no matter what their beliefs, you still hang out with those people, even if you don't have the same beliefs.
0: And I love that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're like, wow, this person has a totally different lifestyle than I do. But the thing we have in common is music. And so we're playing music together. I mean, I I never thought I would ever do music, but I would sing backup for people who would play singer-songwriter kind of music, people who played folk music, people who played alternative rock, Spanish music. Like I just always found myself singing with different kinds of people outside of a genre I would necessarily sing with, but yeah.
0: That's really interesting because I know that you're in New York pursuing music uh, and obviously I've I've seen your concerts. I I own your albums. I was just, I was just streaming a song the other day and I'm like, Oh my gosh, Liz is on this song, um, which is really funny. But I know that you weren't always heading in the music direction. Like what was that like early on? Has music always been a part of your life and it just, it took a bigger role more recently or yeah. What, what is that like?
1: In my mind? I just think, well, All kids listen to music. I mean, I still remember songs from TV shows. Last night, right before I laid my head down, for some reason, the theme song for It's a Small Wonder came on. And like, I haven't seen that show since I was a child. And that just popped into my head. You learn the ABCs. You sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Star. Like, babies just sing. And so when I was a kid, I just loved music. I loved movie soundtracks. I would ask my mom to get me the soundtrack of a favorite Disney film before I actually even saw the movie, just to memorize it and sing along with it. And then I was a middle child, so you have to find a way to entertain yourself. So I would go into the basement and lock the door and just dance and sing for hours. I listened to local radio stations, K103, Kink.fm, Z100, um, smooth Jazz, Kenny G, you know what I'm saying? yet, like Celine Dion, Arrhythmics. And I would go into my bedroom with my foot against the door and just listen to music and harmonize and sing and like be emotional and then leave the room. And I wasn't really, maybe I was an emotional person, but I don't really like to cry in front of people because it feels very vulnerable. But if I go into my room and listen to a song, I'll just start tearing up if it gets me in a certain way. So, like, music wasn't something that I was opposed to, even though there's a history of music in my family. Like, my mom wanted to be a musician, and the story goes that my grandmother, in that time, said that you need to focus on being a wife and a secretary and having kids. And you know, my grandma comes from that day an age where women—that was their identity. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but that's just not all women are. And then my dad was in a famous band in the, maybe the 70s and 80s, but I didn't grow up with him. So it's not like I had these influences around me at all times. And my mom raised five kids by herself. And she would sing through the house. She would sing us awake, out of bed. Um, Rise and shine and kid God the glory, glory. Every morning. And I hated that song. (laughs) And we're like, stop singing it! But slowly as we got older and my older siblings decided to be adults in their own ways, um, the singing kind of stopped. And so it became more of a private thing for me. And not because I was embarrassed or I thought I'd be shamed to, uh, like, shame to stop singing, I just loved it. I would sit in my living room with a little keyboard my aunt bought me and just listen to music and play by ear, like find the notes by ear. Um, but I wanted to be an actress. I used to call up local agencies, ABC teens and kids, <laughs> or I can't even think of, oh, shoot, Barbara. What made you people. want to be an actress? I just loved watching movies, like... I loved movies where kids could be kids, like Babysitter's Club, Now and (laughs) Then, Casper, The Goonies. And so
0: you wanted to be like a kid actress.
1: I did. But you notice most of those movies I named do not have brown kids in those movies, except for The Babysitter's Club. And then I watched that a few years ago as an adult. And I'm like, wow, this is horrible. (laughs) But I (laughs) love those movies. And there's just like, there's an adventure, and it was so different from the life that I was living, um, where well, we didn't have a lot, but we had enough. But in my mind, we lived in the get by, not knowing if there was gonna be lights on when I got home from school, even though I went to private school. But my mom scrubbed toilets and would serve breakfast to get a discount to pay tuition and scholarships. Like, she wanted to provide a way for us to just have the best life possible with the little that she had. And I would kind of like beg her to take me to these fake auditions where then they charge you $600 to buy headshots. And I really wanted that. And so she would do that. She would take me to those auditions. She never bought me the headshots, which I am so thankful for. Oh, my
0: gosh. I wish I could see those. (laughs) Like, I wish... That would oh, have been amazing. I do have
1: some glamour shots. Uh, yeah,
0: we're gonna need we're gonna need to see those for sure.
1: <laughs> I mean, I re- there's a picture that I have where you can tell I feel miserable. I'm like wearing oh. an adult suit with <laughs> lipstick on, and my face is is like expressing how I feel on the inside. Of like, get this stuff off of my face.
0: But you were still like showing up to do this thing because you were interested in pursuing it.
1: Yeah. But these were like family photos too, like Kmart family photos, go get. And she just wanted me to be her dolly. And I hated dressing up. So I would wear my older brother's clothes. (laughs) Um wear tennis shoes. I mean, if we're trying to be real, I, I didn't wear a bra when I knew when I definitely should have been wearing a bra. I was not a small child. (laughs) <laughs> um, and my mom would say, all right, it's time. And I just wanted to be a tomboy. I remember watching Now and Then when Christina Ritchie did not like a part of her body that was developing. And so she tried to ace bandage it down. And I remember doing that. Oh, my god, Ace bandaging my body parts down. Because I just did not want to embrace that. I loved like running and playing basketball with my brother's. Um and my sister was ten years older than me. So by the time I was eight years old, she was living in California.
0: So you're pursuing acting, at least to like some degree, you're you're interested in this. Does this continue after high school?
1: Oh man. So so when I was fifteen, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that really caused me to have a lot of health problems. So I was in oh, and wow. out of the hospital. Um, And I was going to a private school that wasn't the healthiest.
0: Hmm. How so?
1: Mm, Just, you know, experiencing racism, which I didn't really understand racism, but experiencing racism in a way I couldn't articulate. And so I kept a lot of this to myself. Um, And then by the time I was 17, I felt like enough was enough. And I left high school and took my GED test without even studying and started college. Now, the thing that's incredible about that is that my mom worked multiple jobs and she worked at a college. So we got to go to this community college for free. I could have easily said, no, not interested. And even to this day, there are things about my life and decisions that I made in my teen years that feel like a miracle how did I decide to go to college when I had such a horrible experience in high school and so when I went to college I didn't even realize I was smart until I was getting straight A's and I was on the honor roll and on the dean's list and I loved science like it was my jam I love science experiments I love biology um I loved the arts. I was taking acting classes. And I remember a teacher telling my mom that I needed to go to New York or Chicago if I really wanted to pursue acting because Portland was not going to be the place for me. But as I was in school, my health continued to deteriorate. And by the time I was 19, I was on dialysis, but I was so determined to go to school for acting that I, um, took a Greyhound bus with a friend to go visit a college up in Vancouver, BC. And we both got accepted. And that was the same time that I was told that if I didn't start dialysis, that I was not going to live long. And I was going to figure out a way how to go to school up there, but it was, it just wasn't possible. And they said, we really want you to take care of your health first. And I was just so sad and felt so defeated that all I wanted to do was just go to college with my best friend that I've known since I was 11 years old and take these acting classes because that is what I wanted to do. And so my health just got worse. Like I lost a lot of weight because my body started to shut down. I was malnourished. Um, I got a couple of bacterial infections that can actually take people's lives. And it was strictly, I mean, it's not something that would kill a healthy person, but I got it twice and yeah, my body was just not doing well. I had congestive heart failure and
0: and so this whole time your your body's not doing well, but like how are you doing like mentally? Cuz I would imagine that's got to be you not being able to pursue your dreams or just even live the life that you thought you would get to be living as like a young, healthy girl. That's gotta be rough.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was angry. And as a person of faith who chooses to follow after a God, who is the great physician, who heals, who knows your heart and catches all of your tears. Like this fairy tale that I believed in how God would show up and heal me. Like I would literally tell doctors, you don't need to give me that because God is going to heal me. And I believe that I really believe that this God that I put my faith in would never allow me to suffer. That doesn't make sense. Like I was treated poorly in high school and most of my racist experiences were within the church setting but i was not going to let those people like take my mind off of who i knew god to be and this jesus who loved people who healed people who went to the outcast who was an outcast who who came to say actually you've been reading my words wrong this is what i actually meant And let me go a little bit further. If you really want to say you love me, then you have to love these people that you don't think belong to me. Surely this man will show up and heal me. And I just got worse. And I got angry. And I wondered, why me? Why me? Why? What's the point? Just take my life then. There's no point in living. But cut to another side of thinking of like, fine, if this is how I'm going out and keep in mind, I still am like, how did I have this mindset in my mind? I was like, if I'm going to go out this way, and if this has anything to do with dark forces or evil, then I'm going to work my ass off in school. I'm going to go back to school and maybe I can't go back to school for the arts and work in the film industry So I'm going to go to the medical side of things where people who feel hopeless, who are sick, who are dying, who look like me and give them encouragement. And so I decided to go to medical assisting school. So I did six months of medical assisting at this time. My heart, my congestive heart failure improved. I was still pretty malnourished and sick and just not healthy but I still went to school. I would end up in the hospital for like a week or two and I would do my homework. And if I had a test that morning and I got discharged, I would drive to school and take that test. I did not care. I was so determined to not be defeated by death that there are things that I look back at and I'm like, wow, that was really stupid. You almost fainted in class. And you just like, I leaned against a desk and I feel like, My face is like an icicle and I'm on my way down and I'm just holding on to this desk as I'm talking to someone trying not to pass out. But I was determined if I was going to die, it would be doing something with my life. And it seems really dramatic. And if we saw this in a movie, we would be like, wow, she's so strong. But I don't even, I don't know. That was just my mindset. It wasn't to prove to anyone anything. I just was too stubborn to let death ruined the rest of my life however long that would have been and so i finished the first 6 months of medical assisting school and the week before finals i got a phone call at 5:30 in the morning that they had a kidney for me now i had gotten a call 3 months prior that they had a kidney for me and i missed the lion king broadway show <laughs> to go to this hospital and take—I mean, they took so much blood. Oh my goodness! To take labs to find out that the kidney didn't match or it wasn't healthy enough for me, uh, and I missed the Lion King Broadway show. Come which on! I've loved that. Was like my soundtrack.
0: Entertainment and music—it's like the perfect entertainment Liz and Weiss music world. Right?
1: Come on now. So. Getting this phone call at 530 in the morning, which I hated the sound of the phone ringing because bill collectors would call our house all the time. So I always kept the ringer in my phone off in my bedroom, but I could hear the phone ringing in the living room. And I picked up my phone at 530 in the morning and they said, Elizabeth, we have a kidney for you. Now my pager didn't go off. None of that went off, but I heard the phone ringing through my sleep in the living room. And when I answered it, they said, we have a kidney for you. I don't even know how to describe that feeling other than I got out of bed. Then I went into my mom's room and laid in her bed next to her. And she's like, what's wrong? And I said, they have a kidney for me. So I need to go to the hospital. And then I went into the bathroom and I started running water, and I sat in the bathtub, and I took a bath. In my mind, I thought, if I died on the hospital table, at least I would be clean.
0: <laughs> oh <my laughs> and gosh. so
1: we get to the hospital. They prep me. I mean, you see this in movies where, like, an emergency happens, and you see the lights, and all of these doctors are coming around you, and they're taking your blood pressure, and you lay down on a gurney or a, whatever they call it, a hospital bed. And they give you an IV and then they wheel you down this hallway and you just see light after light, after light, after light passing. And, and your, your mind is spinning and you're trying to catch up with reality. It's like your mind is spinning and your consciousness is like running after your body of like, hold on, what's actually happening? And so reality and the imagination Have not come to terms with what is happening. And then you're counting back from some numbers, and then you wake up with oxygen flowing through your nostrils, and your mouth is really dry, and your throat hurts. And then I wake up, and I have people from the church community that I was a part of who. It was a small community, and I they would come by my side. And when I was in the hospital, like and couldn't eat because I was attached to like a feeding tube, um, they would come and feed me oatmeal. Or I'd wake up out of um, morphine sleep and see someone doing a crossword puzzle from me. And then to wake up after
0: the surgery to see those same faces of like,
1: "Hey, you made it. You're here. You're alive."
0: That's like beautiful. And what did it feel like to be out on that other side to, you know, for this to not have been a fake out Lion King moment and for you to actually, you know, be with people you love, not dead and clean. What was that like?
1: Yeah. I mean, you wake up from surgery and you have these faces of people who've been surrounding you since day one, since you're like 15 years old and now you're 22 years old having dealt with these health issues for seven years for so long, you kind of slowly start to release certain dreams that you had of like, okay, well, I guess I'll never get married because who wants to marry a sick woman? I guess I'll never have kids because I'm not trying to be a single mom. And I don't know if I'd be alive long enough to have kids. I guess I'm not going to go to a four-year university because I won't live long enough to complete it. And then you wake up and people are smiling. And they're like, yay, you made it. Yes, you're here. Hi, congratulations. We love you. And I'm like, huh, what's happening? I'm crying. I'm smiling. And then you go back into the recovery room. And you're like, wow, this... I'm peeing for the first time. I haven't peed in three and a half years because that's what (laughs) happens when your kidney and bladder shut down. So I guess this is where we start. I'm very angry. um, And I don't understand why I had to go through that. So let's go see the doctor. Listen to what I'm supposed to do now. I laid in my bed. It snowed the day I was, uh, discharged from the hospital, which I love snow. So that actually felt like a gift for me. I really love snow. And I just remember listening to music every single day in my bed. And I even tried to write a letter to the family of the young guy who passed away, whose kidney I still have. And I just couldn't do it because it felt like those moments you see on TV, on Oprah, on Jenny Jones on Ricky Lake show, on Murray, like these moments that I wanted to play in a movie.
0: Yeah, you had to like live up to the hype almost.
1: And now I'm living that and I have to keep moving like a zombie. And so I'm going to the doctors, I'm getting lab work. Here's the breakdown of the medications you have to take. Oh, we think part of your lung has collapsed. We need to send you to the hospital now to make sure that your lung hasn't collapsed because you might have to deflate your lung and inflate it again. Oh, it's actually just a blood clot. So now we're going to give you medication to take blood thinners. But you have to give yourself injections in the belly. So I had these huge bruises on my stomach. And so after four weeks of figuring out how to... Take care of myself post transplant. I went back to school. I needed to finish what I started. I went to school four weeks later, and my doctor's like, No, "Uh, no, you're not. Four weeks later? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I had to wear like this thing on my stomach because it felt like every, like my stomach was just going to pour out through my incision. So I had to wear like this brace on my stomach and I'd walk with my hand over my incision where my kidney is. But I had to finish all of my finals from the finals week that I missed before I got my transplant, plus first week of schooling, which was an externship going into different hospitals. And I, of course, was placed into the cancer department of uh, this specific hospital that i've been a fan of where i actually got my kidney transplant and i would have to go and work with patients that looked like me only four weeks prior and i knew exactly how to take care of them i knew that they were cold i knew that they needed water i knew that they needed a pillow under their feet in the chairs that were too small I knew that they needed someone to put their hand on their shoulder and comfort them when they were newly diagnosed with cancer. I knew how to be quiet and just let someone be in silence as they prepped to get a bone marrow test. I knew how to comfort the spouses of the people who would go and watch their spouse deteriorate. Um, I knew how to do that. And then I would go home and cry because I was still processing what I had gone through And then I'd have to go and look at people who looked just like me only a month before. And I had to go get lab work done three times a week. And after that, go down to school. And my mom would drive me and do these things for me.
0: Like, what a beautiful thing that you were able to be in that position to do that. But also, that's so hard and it's so much to put on you, especially in the middle of all of that.
1: Oh, yeah. And it was, I mean, it's just like so fresh. It wasn't like, oh, this was me two years ago. It was like, oh, this was me last month. And when you work in a hospital, as big as this hospital was, you really don't have time to invest in people one by one. And I didn't like being rushed off and having to go organize a drawer while knowing someone is so nervous they're puking into a trash can that they have cancer. And I was doing like... Uh, temp work. So I didn't get a job that was full time. And I was like, okay, all right, Jesus, for some reason, I'm still here. Don't really understand how you work or how you show up in people's lives. But uh, if I don't get a job by this particular date, I'm going to go back to school to do what I want to do. And somehow, uh, college to go to the Portland Art Institute, Like somehow an ad or something came my way in an email and I went and visited the school and I started film school and yeah, I went to film school. I was like, you know what? You like
0: came back around to the entertainment world.
1: I did. I went to film school and I said, well, since I don't see people that look like me, I will be the person that makes the movies, that brings these people to the screen. And from day one, it was like, "Hey, we need an intern to work on this film. We're looking for seniors." I was—I had already had credits. I had like two associate's degrees: associate of science, associate of arts, and my certification of medical assisting. So when I, by the time I went there, I already had credits. So maybe I was like sophomore status, junior status. I said, "I'll do it." I literally just like took any job that came my way. It's free. I don't care. I remember working on set where I was scooping dirt into a bucket that had a hole in it only to be dumped on set. So I was always picking up dirt and then pouring it back out seconds later for this commercial. But in that, I got to meet a lot of incredible people and I also had a lot of people tell me I was going to be eaten alive because I wasn't thick skinned enough that integrity didn't matter in this industry and I was like I don't believe that. I believe that I can treat people well and still get to do what I love. And it's harder to get noticed, but there was one guy his name is Simon Max Hill <laughs> and I worked on this film set where it was freezing cold and he would ask me to do things, and I, like, go start a fire in this tent for these extras to go stay warm when they're not on set. I've never started a fire, let alone with a propane tank, let alone in a tent without <laughs> matches. So my thing was, is I'm not going to pretend I know how to do this. I'm going to ask someone who does. And Simon noticed that, and he's like, you're getting these things done. Like, I don't have to beg you to do these things. And I think when I graduated from school, well, one, I finished school, and I was asked by the department head to give the graduation speech.
0: Wow.
1: And I was so scared, but a lot of people knew my story because you have to tell your story when you're in school a little bit about yourself and why you're in film school. And I really bonded with a few teachers from my school. And I will say we had a lot of crappy teachers, but I took advantage. I would be at school from 9.45 a.m. until 11.45 at night teaching myself certain softwares that we didn't have classes for, um, how to author DVDs so that if I shot a wedding... I would be able to make a DVD for them to have different menus and they could have interviews or like just different parts of the DVDs for whatever the project was. It didn't matter. I would teach myself. I would teach myself how to edit sound and pro tools. I, would, I was so determined to learn how to make movies that I would be in school from nine forty-five in the morning to 11 PM and set up meetings with teachers to teach me certain software programs that weren't being taught in school so that I could learn how to do these things for myself when I would do freelance projects yeah so I was just like super determined and this led to me being the speaker for the graduation uh, for my graduating class actually for the whole school when we
0: (laughs) that's unreal that's amazing you're like brushing by that but that's a big deal
1: I mean, I wanted to say no right away, (laughs) but I was the first female to ever give a graduation speech in my department. And so I had to represent. And I remember the way to reason to myself to be brave enough to do this was to pretend that I was prepping for the Academy Awards. One of my teachers helped me write my speech. And I made it personal, but I didn't want to make it didactic. I didn't want it to be preachy because I knew people didn't have the same faith beliefs as I did. But I, there are principles that we can all apply, whether you believe in Jesus or not. And that is we all need hope. We all have a story and we all have to overcome something. And so that was the purpose of my speech was to say there was a point in my life where I saw no future And now I'm graduating with honors from college, a place that I never thought I would live to see. Um, And so when I started my speech, I pretended to pull an award from under the podium and introduce myself for the Academy Awards and then thank them for laughing because I didn't know how that would play out. And I almost didn't do it, but my teacher was like, Courtney was sitting across in the audience and she was like, you have to do it. And so we're like looking at each other while all these other teachers are giving speeches. And I'm debating on stage whether or not I'm going to try to be funny. So yeah, uh, graduation. Yes, when I went on stage, I pulled this basketball trophy. It looked close enough to an Academy Awards (laughs) out from under the podium. And I was like, I just first want to thank the Academy. So I had to let myself know that by doing this speech, it was preparing me for when I received my Oscar from when I wrote movies. Um, And I graduated and I thought, what's next? But I did get a scholarship that uh, guaranteed me and it paid internship position for a local morning TV show, AM Northwest with Helen Raptis and Dave Anderson. And my boss, I remember him telling me and... Another intern, I don't do this often, but I think you guys are awesome and I'd love to see you guys produce a segment. And so I brought in a friend that I had met through a storyboarding class to talk about a documentary he did on the Portland Trailblazers (laughs) and he sold out his DVDs sold out and a portion of the money went back into a nonprofit and it was awesome. And then after that, he would hire me to author DVDs for uh, documentaries that he directed. And I finished working on that show. And the next year I got offered a uh, opportunity to apply for a scholarship to get my master's in producing. And I applied. They flew me to Virginia. I showed my short film. I got the okay to get that scholarship. Like I won the scholarship and I turned it down because I felt that if I was going to go to school for film to get my master's, it was really because I was afraid that I would not survive in this industry. And if I was going to have a plan B, then I shouldn't even have Said yes to this journey in the first place. So I turned down a $100,000 scholarship. What? Oh my <laughs> I know.
0: gosh. That like hurt a little bit to hear.
1: I know. But then I got hired to work on a low budget TV show. Um, actually, I got offered to work on two different projects one was a low budget TV show, and one was for a movie that I've seen so many times that I love. And I turned down the movie and I went to the office of this low budget TV show and it was Portlandia.
0: (laughs) Amazing.
1: And so I worked on season two of Portlandia as the extras casting slash coordinator. And I worked my butt off and that was the hardest job. I, have well, actually, no, that was one of the hardest jobs, but the first film job I'd ever had where I had to organize over 6,000 entries. And that job came from Simon Max Hill, my first boss on the first film set I had ever worked on when I was in school. And from that day on, he would hire me to do casting and he would send job leads to me all the time. So I'm really thankful for him. And after working on Portlandia, work was slow And I was a part of a church, a new church. And the pastor was like, hey, you sing on the worship team. We love your voice. Do you want to sing on this record called Wounded Healer? And I'm like, sure. I don't know any of these songs. Or maybe I do know some of these songs, but not well enough to just come to the studio. I just finished Portlandia, 22 days of shooting, working 15 hours a day. And now I'm going to go into the studio and record Songs that I sing once or twice a week at church, but I love these songs, so sure, why not? And I sang a song called "Enfold Me." And then I went on my merry way, had no work for like two and a half months wondering, what have I done? Why did I turn down that scholarship for film school? And then I get an email from a local ad agency called White and Kennedy.
0: No big deal. Just the creators of Just Do It and the Old Spice guy. <laughs>
1: no biggie. And I didn't apply for that job, and they're like, "Would you like to work here?" And I said, "Yeah." Here's my resume. Sent in my resume, and because of my job on Portlandia, my boss was really good friends with the producer of Portlandia, and I got that job with no job interview.
0: Wow!
1: And that's amazing. Then I worked at Widen Kennedy for three months. And I remember getting an email for everyone who worked in the digital department, the film, the post-production video department of White and Kennedy that we all got tickets to go see the girl with the dragon tattoo. I'm like, that's random. But Emily Fincher, David Fincher's sister worked at White and Kennedy. And I was like, who? I mean, I know who David (laughs) Fincher is, but like, I was seriously like, who is that? And, uh, I remember I was like, you know what, I don't know if this is appropriate, but I'm going to email her and ask ask her if I can just pick her brain about her thoughts of the film industry in Portland and women's roles in the film industry. And after that hour conversation, she said, it's people like you that we want down here. When you're done with your internship upstairs, we'd love to have you down here. So I stayed in my internship an extra month and went downstairs to – The in-house digital department, and worked there for three more months. So I was there for almost eight months working at White and Kennedy, and I didn't really feel like that was the place for me. Although it was an incredible experience, and so I didn't ask to stay, and I didn't. I decided not to go back to Portlandia, um, which I felt like an insane person, and then. I went on a road trip with a friend and I got hired to work on another film. And then Josh White, the pastor from the church I was a part of, told me he had some songs that belonged to me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not.
0: Wait, wait, wait. What does that mean?
1: Well, he wrote these songs that he wanted to do for his own solo project. But he said, I have these songs that I want to be selfish and keep them for myself, but I really feel like they belong to you, and so I'm going to write you an album, and I'm thinking, okay, that's really nice, but I'm not a musician. I only sing once a month, and I need to pay off my student debt, and I love working in film, no matter how hard it is, and you know, working in the film industry is feast or famine, and so it was really hard, and I would work on projects that were cause anyone to have PTSD. And I'm like, what's the point of this? But I still loved working in the film industry. And then the time finally came where Josh was like, all right, your record's ready. I need you to go rehearse these songs. One day of rehearsal. And the next day I need you guys to go into the studio one day in the studio and work on these songs. And then you're going to have three months to, familiarized with these songs, finalized vocals. We did all that. Then I sang on a friend's record, and Trapper, sang Shine On with my friend Eric Early. He is so awesome. And he helped produce my record as well. And really, I felt protected by him, even though it was like a whirlwind happening around me to do something so outer body, like singing into a microphone, singing with other musicians who do this for a living. And here I am feeling like an imposter. They're going to find me out. surely they know that I don't know how to sing this is a joke what am I doing and then release my record we sell out at Mississippi Studios in 10 days the buyer calls me and says hey we've never had that happen before would you be interested in opening up for Cody Chestnut I'm like what (laughs) and at that show someone's like hey love what you're doing would you be interested in opening up for St. Paul and the Broken Bones I'm say what and then from that show, it's someone saying, hey, would you be interested in playing at the Blues Festival? And then from then on, it was just word of mouth getting hired to play these different shows, wow. these artists headlining at Mississippi Studios.
0: What's going on internally for you in this moment where you're like, okay, all of these things are aligning. I'm, I'm having random successes, like one after another after another in this world that I didn't think I was going to be in at all all while you're still like hustling in this other world. Yeah. What's going through your mind?
1: What is this? Why didn't I go to school to be a doctor?
0: <laughs> That's
1: <laughs> what I was thinking. You can't live this way. What am I doing? Who do I think I am that I can do these things? They don't pay very well. I don't know what I'm doing in music. Film isn't working out and I'm not willing to sacrifice my like My morals to kiss someone's butt to move up on the ladder. I just can't do it. I can treat people normal, but then I would find myself befriending people who can't move me up on the ladder. But those are just the people that I felt drawn to, those relationships. And so music is unfolding and I'm thinking, what is this? Am I, is this something I'm supposed to look into or can I just not do it and say, that was fun. This is great. And I was doing music full time for a year, no management, no agent selling CDs that I would then save up money for and buy more CDs. Um, and then the next year I get contacted by someone who wants to manage me and help me make more records. And I'm like, what? Now this is a joke am I supposed to do this? Do I have to do this? Is this how calling works? And so, you know, I listened to different sermons or seminars on knowing what you're supposed to do, career finders, what you're supposed to do with your life. And it's always pointing to people on the outside will let you know what you're really gifted at, what your calling is, quote unquote calling. And I don't even like that word because sometimes it's just so Far into the future and not present, that you feel overwhelmed that I cannot do this for the rest of my life. But when I practice saying this is what I do for now, it makes it more palatable. And music just blew up. And I was touring with like LaCrae, Blind Boys of Alabama, opening up for the temptations, open up for Joss Stone like headlining shows, selling out shows in LA and Atlanta and Chicago. And I'm like, who is doing this? Who gets to live this? And you go home and you feel lonely and you feel exhausted and you feel spent. But then you go to these shows where people are like, my sister just passed away, but she was a huge fan of your music or remembering that I sang by the side of a man who was passing away from cancer because he loved my voice. Like I was the last voice that he heard before he passed away and just being in these situations and these positions and thinking, Hey, is this me? I feel like I'm, I'm suffering from locked in syndrome. Like my body is here on stage, engaging with these people, hearing these stories, bringing comfort to these people. But I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I have to do this. And then I get an offer to work in New York City to be the music director at a church. And I'm like, look, I love Jesus, but I have an issue with his followers. (laughs) And I'm like, I totally get it when people say that. But I do think community is beautiful. And uh, it took me a year to say yes, but New York is the place that I've been wanting to live. For years, for years, a place that I never thought that I would live in because I was sick, a place I never thought that I would live in because of the film industry. How would I excel in my craft if no one invites me? And I've been invited to this table of music where I'm not asked to save people, but asked to bring people together, no matter their beliefs, to remind them that they have the power to bring peace on earth. To remind them that they have the power to feed their neighbor, whether they like them or not. To have the power to remind women that they have a voice in this world. I've been mentoring young people since I graduated from film school, because I used to teach film and I volunteered with this nonprofit for like five years. To teach kids how to make movies from inner city, like young inner city kids who don't have access to take, to join a summer program that costs hundreds of dollars. Um, Kids in rehab facilities, kids in foster care systems, I got to teach them how to tell a story through film, through a medium that I love, through a medium that causes people to come together to just shut up and look at a screen and watch a story unfold. And now I'm doing that with music and I tell my story from stage. And no matter what your beliefs are, no one can argue against my story.
0: This is absolutely incredible. You've gone through this story where, you know, you thought you were heading in one direction and something got in the way of that. And then and then you were able to overcome that and continue pursuing this, this film direction. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're your identity or passions or interests or or abilities shifted and and you went in this totally different route for people who you know they're they're still trying to figure out what their calling is or their direction is and maybe their story looks a little bit like yours what what kind of advice would you offer them what what's an action step they could take to not necessarily follow down the path that you followed you know because they don't need to become the next Liz Vice but Let them do something that allows them to become themselves in a more full way. The first thing that comes to mind
1: is be honest with what you actually want. I just wanted to tell stories. And in my mind, to tell stories was through film. And I don't think that it's the end of me in the film industry. But I get to do that now. So I guess it's knowing what you actually want, the root of what you actually want. And telling stories is bringing people together. At the end of the day, it's like, what do you really want? And are you willing to be flexible? And is your identity so tied in to what you do that you can't be flexible? Then I think you need to examine why. Because it's when you're squeezed. I've once heard it explained like this. We're like sponges. And it's not until we're squeezed that we actually know the substance that's inside of us. And so when everything was stripped away from me, my health, my dignity, I mean, like being in a hospital gown where people are touching your naked body all the time, you kind of like, whatever. (laughs) What actually is left after all of that happens? If music ends for you and that means your life ends, then something is not right. So be flexible be open. Have people surround you that will kick you in the ass to say, get up and keep fighting for what you know in your heart you're supposed to be doing. Get up. I think that's the only reason why I'm still doing this is because people won't let me quit because they see something inside of me that I've yet to see for myself.
0: I love thinking about the idea of our calling being a sort of invitation. Liz demonstrates this so beautifully when she said that she's been invited to the table of music, where she's not asked to save people, but to remind people that they have the power to bring peace on earth, feed their neighbor, whether they like them or not, and to remind women that they have a voice in the world. Our calling doesn't have to be this far out there in the future thing, but something that is alive and active in the present that just requires our willingness and participation. For Liz, there was no roadmap and tons of beautiful surprises that only made her the resilient and incredibly strong person that she is today. What a good conversation. If you liked this conversation with Liz, you would really appreciate our past episodes with singer-songwriter Grace Tyson, who uses music to fight human trafficking in the United States, or our conversation with the band Joseph. You've probably heard of them. They are so good. Both of these conversations will leave you so inspired and you can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good. Thank you so much to Chad Michaels-Navely and the team at CM Studio for editing and mixing the show. And a huge thank you to Chrissy Karen Brock for your production support. You can find lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at at Co. We do a lot of things for the sake of messy hope at Good 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 because good news isn't dead. One thing that we're really excited to announce as the holiday season comes into full force is that we just created good newspaper gift subscriptions. So you can go to shop.goodgoodgood.co and you can subscribe to the good newspaper for a loved one or a family member and give them the gift of a year of good news. And with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Remember that we all need hope. We all have a story. We all have to overcome something. And remember to surround yourself by people who won't let you quit. Sound good?